Welcome to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance, where top-level COOs share the insights, tactics, and strategies that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Jessica Higgins, the COO for Gaping Void, which is a culture design group based in Miami, has um, an amazing story to tell, and we had a really fun interview today. Jessica and I met at a Genius Network event about a year ago, and um, I was first really enamored with their company because of the art that they do, but I didn't realize the depth of the actual culture consulting they do for major brands, and they do some fantastic stuff. So definitely check out gapingvoid.com and some of the cool artwork, but also listen in on the podcast to some of the leadership tips and uh, business stories that she can give us. Jessica's got her MBA. She also has her law degree and, again, is the COO for Gaping Void. It's the only end-to-end culture design firm that's in existence. And Her team gives all the strategies, methods, and tools that you need to make your ideal culture become a reality. She's also an author and a public speaker and a board advisor for organizations and technologies and the arts. She wrote a really cool piece on the 20, uh, I guess, 20 tips related to female executives. If you just look up 20 female executive and uh, the name Jessica Higgins, you'll see an amazing article from her. But anyway, enough of me rambling. Let's dive into this uh, conversation with Jessica and I. Jessica Higgins, the COO for Gaping Void, which is a culture design firm. And Jessica and I met at a conference called the Genius Network um, about a year ago. And I was super impressed with her skill set and talent as an executive and, and also really understanding about culture, which is something I'm obsessed about. So I'm really excited to talk to you today, Jessica. And just want to find out from you, um, you know, for sure about culture, but how did you end up in this role? Sure. Hey, Cameron. Um, yeah, I ended up in this role completely by accident. Uh, how all great things, I think, happen, right? It's just um, being in the right place at the right time and taking advantage, um, which is funny because every entrepreneur I talk to has that story, you know, you hear the story of their like great success, but the truth is most of us are just kind of in the right place at the right time. So um, I was, I was running my own firm and um, I was hosting a technology event actually down here in Miami where I live, bringing um, like Silicon Valley concepts into Miami. And um, somebody came up to me and said, you need to to sit down and meet my boyfriend. And I thought, okay, well, I've never heard that before for sure. So sure. Um, And so the the boyfriend was Jason and and he was uh, looking to start a consulting firm. And I had a consulting firm. I used to previously run a consulting firm and at the time had my own. And so um, he asked me to build a consulting firm side on his business. So I took him on as a client. I said, sure. No problem. Built his consulting side, handed it off to him, said, here you go. Here's your consulting firm. And he was like, no, 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 I need you to run this thing. So then that's kind of how we've been working together for four years now. Okay. Now, so what's the tie-in with the consulting firm with Jason and with Gaping Void and with Hugh McLennan's art? Is that just part of what you do or are you you affiliated with his art? How does that tie-in work? I still don't understand that. I know, I know. It's funny. We have a long history and kind of an interesting business. And it's it's a lot like IDEO started, right? IDEO started as a, as a design firm and then kind of rolled into this consulting side mm. of their firm. And, and we started in a very similar way. So Hugh and Jason have been working together since, I think it was 2004. Okay. And uh, yeah, and Hugh was, a, you know, a blogger and an artist. And um, I believe that... Jason and he, oh, I remember they, um, Jason hired him to do some marketing and then they ended up working together doing 
really transformative and disruptive stuff inside of businesses. And, um, and then they also had a product side and they were selling, you know, selling his work online as art and art products, t-shirts and things like that. And, um, so the idea and the concept was, why don't we take a more formalized approach to this disruptive, you know, business idea and, um, disrupt business in specific ways toward a guided towards specific outcomes. And that was an idea that had come from a consultant that they had worked with who found their work and kind of said, Oh, this is really interesting. I want to bring this into Roche pharmaceuticals. And um, the work that they did was really transformative to this day. uh, The actually the, it was the head of innovation at Roche or was she, yeah, she was one of the innovation leads at Roche. She says to this day, it was the, it was the best thing that ever happened to their business um, in the, you know, just allowing people to think differently and more innovatively. And, and, so, and, no, tell me. So is the big corporate your focus on the consulting and on this culture consulting, or are you still tying into the tech sector? No, it's, you know, I came from a background. So um, I came from a background of restructuring healthcare and high unemployment uh, governments. So I really love helping people. My mission is to help people. So I'm not tied to any particular in, particular industry. Um, you know, allowing a big company to be nimble like a um, like a startup is is interesting. Allowing healthcare to be more human is is also amazing. Uh, we do a fair amount of work in higher education. I just got back from Tulane University, actually. So we're looking at how we bring the future of work uh, and what work will be, bring that into the mindset of the students now and allow them to think differently as they transform from the, you know, the being a kid to going to college and um, then going from college into the working world. You know, what are the new skill sets? What are the new mindsets? What are the new behaviors? I love that. I I actually just wrote two posts before we hopped on this call. The the first one was just how frustrated I still am with the um, education system in the U.S. and how it really needs disruption. And then the second was that I was excited about talking to you on this, um, on the podcast and seeing who else we wanted to, to interview for it. So tell me about what you see coming then that needs to either change in education or what, what, um, you know, maybe the kids that are in high school or university need to be preparing themselves for? Yeah, I mean, education is being disrupted. You know, you look at these online universities, Singularity University, and it was it was originally the idea, and this idea still, unfortunately, you know, I think education and healthcare for me are the two areas that we need the most in this country, and they're the two areas that are the most behind in this country. Mm-hmm. Really mm-hmm. unfortunate. But, you know, there's this idea that vocational schools are schools that teach you real skills. You know, you go to these third tier universities, these two year universities for vocational skills, and then an edu- you know, a proper education is kind of a, an enlightenment in a lot of ways where you just you show up and you just, you know, randomly learn for four years. Well, that's no longer the case. I mean, Singularity University is a direct by- byproduct of, um, you know, education is has to really change and teach people new uh, real skills and and you know new ways of thinking yes absolutely but um i think that and i i, would, I actually really want to i'm going to stop myself because i want to hear your thoughts on that and your thoughts about the future of education so i'm not just rambling no it, well it, I, i'm similar because i actually think that there should be a trend back towards more apprenticeship and more working with great companies and in great fields instead of going to a university or a college to get the theory. I like the whole practicality of some of the two-year programs because I, I think there is more hands-on experience gained there. I was kind of just looking at your bio and you know, you've got an undergraduate degree in psychology and then you went to law school and then an MBA. And I think the, 
law school is probably the most practical hands-on that you have to go. You can't really go an apprentice and learn to be a lawyer. Maybe you could. Um, but I almost look at like an undergrad in psychology and an MBA as things that you could almost get by apprenticing. So I think a lot of kids end up in these four-year programs, me being one of them, not really knowing what I wanted to be doing. And I leave going, I learned stuff, but I, I could have learned. And if I was going to work for four companies for free for four years, I would have come out with no debt and lots of experience. And I still would have been partying and hanging out with kids that were my age. So yeah, I, I have to disagree with you on the law school thing, because even law school, you think it's an apprenticeship type of situation, but it's really, um, there was a fourth tier law school next to me. And I remember I graduated from a first year law school. And I remember working um, as an intern with the fourth or the fourth year law school student, and she knew how to do things. And I didn't even know how to write a brief. I graduated law school, not nobody ever taught me how to write a brief. They just wow. teach you how to think. Um, yes, yeah, so, you know, teaching you how to think those skills are Great. But like you said, I mean, in a world where I can teach myself an entire, and I, I kind of did get through law school off of Google, I have to be honest with you. When I figured out I could just Google things, I was like, why would I bother <laughs> reading all these books, you know, whatever. Um, but when you can teach yourself anything on the internet and information is free, I think the democratization of information is going to completely transform how we look at, at school. And I don't, I don't think that I think we'll be the last generation who forces our children to go to college. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely not a fan of forcing my kids to go to college for exactly what you're saying. And, and so I'm, I'm older than you are. I, I'm not going to date you or date me, but um, I'm older. So I went to college when there was no one in my residence in first year university who had a computer. Um, there were 67 guys in my residence. None had a computer there. Were, we all had typewriters. And, um, and that was the era that you had to memorize things to be smart because there was nowhere to look it up. You couldn't go to the <laughs> library to answer every question. There was no Google. Um, so, so you had to memorize it all. And then you fast forward, you know, 20 years later, everybody has computers. And why are we teaching kids to memorize stuff when the answers are either in the textbook or online? And I think there is a huge movement, even in the business world, to hiring kids who can, or, or adults who can work together, collaborate, research, solve problems, can figure out how to work together as a team, can almost divide and conquer and um, versus being the whole smart person in the room. And I think there's almost a trend against being the smartest person in the room versus the person who can collaborate and, and research faster. You're absolutely right. I know, and I, as I was talking, I think where's that space for creativity? Because we still have to learn to... Right creative and learn to work together you're and and I think there is there is that space that's missing right because um so many of my friends dropped out of so many of my friends who are are very major entrepreneurs now dropped out of school at 14 or 15 definitely by high school because the educational system just wasn't serving them well and I believe it does not serve we were talking before this podcast it just does not serve really brilliant people very well yeah um, I was out for dinner last night with a CEO here in Vancouver and he's telling me about his brother in Chicago who's just cashed out of his second company at um, $250 million is what he sold his two companies for now total. And he dropped out of school when he was 17 years old and started working in restaurants and bars and ended up building chains of restaurants and bars. So there's a, there's a huge movement towards it. So tell me what you're doing inside of Gaping Void around culture. I know you go into big companies to teach them about culture, but what are you doing inside your own company? Because it can't just be hanging the art and so give us the give us the real stuff that you guys have codified internally. Um, so internal codification is really around uh, creating a fully mobile first workforce. First of all, so mm -hmm. I'm a huge proponent of let people do their best and give them the space they need to be creative. So 
we, you know, we've tried and tested out various things, but what we find is that so long as we adopt the, um, what are Vern Harnish's principles he always talks about? Of course, I'm forgetting the name. Um, our friend Vern always talks about yeah. the, the, uh, mm, the catalytic mechanism. Uh, Related to what? Sorry, he's got a... Uh, yeah, his, man his management principles he always talks about. Well, one, one of those principles is have a, have a 30 minute check-in every day. Okay. And so what we find is the 30 minute check-in every day really serves as well. And so it's not, um, the codification system is very loose and we, we each go off and do our thing. We come together for 30, 30 minutes in the morning and just check in with each other and see what's going on. So we stay connected. Um, okay. Each of us works in very different things. So we don't collaborate um, unless we are in a culture design project in the middle of that, we'll come together and collaborate and, um, just, you know, just discuss and, and work through, you know, what the problems are together and how do we solve them together. But other than that, we work very individually and very loosely on our own. Um, we send emails. We try not to bother each other by phone. It's really just, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of a, a high trust environment. And I believe that in a high trust environment, we have to operate under good intentions always, and just believe that we're doing, you know, we're each doing our best and, and it allows, allows me to do my best and it allows everybody else to do their best. And it's great because I don't have to like micromanage anybody, you know? What, what tools do you use? Do you, do you use any tools internally to, um, to help make sure people are getting stuff done or to help give them the tools to get more done? I actually really hate those productivity tools, Cameron, and okay. I've tried them all. And I find, and you know, I have companies that'll say, okay, we're using, six different productivity tools come help us we have to we have to right. together you know um so i can officially say we use Basecamp, and i can officially say i don't love it okay yeah um, we just we just switched from Basecamp to asana and i'm not sure if we'll love it anymore either yeah yeah so um i know i'm a productivity expert i should like these tools i mean no but maybe not maybe you just maybe you're more of a fan of hiring people that are just productive versus yeah. having them forcing them to use tools like i've said about salespeople forever that you, sales a great salesperson doesn't need a crm they basically <laughs> need a phone and a laptop and and a pen and a you know, notepad and they'll crank they'll, they'll sell and, and the more time you waste of theirs getting them to fill out stuff in a crm the less time they have to sell it's so true. It's so true. Yeah, I, I really hate fake productivity and I really value real productivity. So you're absolutely right. You know, when we have a new salesperson on board, they say, where's the CRM? You know, where's Salesforce? And we're like, um, yeah, no, just be your own Salesforce. Manage yourself, manage however you like. If you want to get Salesforce, use it. You know, just do whatever works best for you. So where do you find the people and what do you look for when you're looking for people then? Let's back up to that then. So I'm extremely fortunate in that people um, come to, to us and, and, you know, people who are huge fans of the company will say, you know, I'd love to come and work for you guys. And, and if we, you know, if they're skilled and they're and very skilled, then we, you know, we find a space for them and allow them to do their best. So we have a team, a small team of really, really um, valuable people. I don't pull in a lot. I, I don't be able to believe in a lot of like FTEs. I don't pull in a ton of headcount just for the sake of doing so. Same reason, you know, I don't have a big oak desk just for the sake of doing so. <laughs> like if you've got people who are really great at what their work, then you don't need those things. So yeah. Okay. No, I don't have an oak desk either. I have a teak desk from, from Thailand, but it's, um, it's like Brian Solace and it's just this big, huge trunk yeah. of a tree. Um, okay. So you don't have to work hard to find people. They just come to you. That, that can't be that easy, right? You, or do you look for something when they come to you? How do you filter them? Stop jinxing me. I can't have you like 
ruining my name here, Cameron. Uh, yeah, no, we, um, you know, I, we find people from other places that most people, it's really funny. So most people hate their work, right? So yeah. if you have a culture firm, that immediately attracts people. And so okay. the first step is like somebody really skilled coming to us and saying, God, I really hate my job and I hate what I do and I want to come work for you guys. And then, um, you know, we, we each meet with them and if we all agree, then they're onboarded and we work with them to get them up to speed. And um, that's pretty much as simple as it is. So do you work with a lot of freelancers then as well? Uh, yeah, I have some freelancers from time to time. Um, I definitely our mobile development team is a team of freelancers and they are in um, Eastern Europe somewhere, but mostly collaborators. And oh, sorry, there's a dog in the office next to me who's barking if you can okay. hear. We have a dog friendly environment here, so apologies for the dogs. Um, but yeah, we've got a, you know, a few full-time folks and a lot of uh, really great collaborators. And so I guess the fr term, yeah, freelancers, yeah. Okay, so with, with the collaborators, I've heard a lot of people in the past, and I disagree with them, say that it's really hard to find collaborators or really hard to find people off Upwork. Or, um, and I think it's just as easy to find them as it is to find good employees. So do you have any systems or tools to, to filter those people out or to find out who you're going to start giving more and more projects to? Um, so we're, we are pretty smart people. And so we just use our, you know, our best judgment and look at like, you know, what are your outcomes? What's your work been like? And, um, we, we've not had any bad luck with just good common sense so far. You're really operating under a pure meritocracy. It's perfect. It's yeah. It's and super and super trust-based. And you so just like, you just hang around all day and like just smoke pot and sit in a lotus position and go like, just say ohm and everything just works. It sounds like Vancouver. I don't smoke pot and we're all super busy and productive. So the op I would say the opposite of that. But I think it's everybody just, How is it so easy? Is it because your culture or because you're just focused on outcomes and you don't get bogged down with all the stuff that the rest of companies do? Yeah, I mean, our culture is, is defined around doing exceptional work. So it's not easy at all. In fact, most of us are really stressed out, right? Most of the time, but we're stressed out for the right reasons. We're stressed out because we're like, pushing so hard and going so hard and doing such great work that we, we stress ourselves out oftentimes. And I'm, I'm working and grappling through that. Um, like how do we, how do we each shut down and how do we each take time? Because in a fully trust-based organization, we're always on We're you know, and it's fully work-life integrated and um, the, you know, the parents can be parents and they can do their work when they, you know, they can do their work and the, um, you know, the single people can be single people and they just integrate their work and as they go, but, it's like, how do we all kind of shut down in this environment? It's been a question for me lately and something I'm working through. Do you have any, any tips? Well, and then I'll give you some, but I'd like to, I was funny. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday about this and she was, she hasn't had a vacation in two years. I'm like, that's insane. And, and she's just this driven, 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 focused, 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 high performing exec inside of a company that says they can take as much vacation as they want, but it seems like no one does. I'm not going to name the brand, but, um, so what do you guys do to, to, to ensure people are taking their vacation time or are disconnecting? Oh, and, and are you good at that? I haven't had a vacation in three years. So thanks. <laughs> when I realized that and actually booked a vacation for this weekend, but, uh, or next weekend. But um, yeah, I mean, the fact that my weekend is a vacation tells you. Yeah. <laughs> that's not yeah, we, a weekend isn't, that was what she was saying is, well, I have weekends. I'm like, well, those aren't, those aren't vacations. Those are weekends. Like you need, so you haven't done that. That's interesting. So, okay. So 
Yeah, I, I think that what I've been trying to teach people for years, and this is part of what I've tried to codify as, as part of culture, is we talk about this work-life balance, but the only way we can really get there is to obsess about it. And if people aren't good at taking it, we have to force them to. And the reason we force people to take vacations is I want them to recharge. It's kind of like you have to, um, like an athlete can't play in their professional sport eight hours a day, five days a week, their bodies would just break down. Their minds would break down. They'd make mistakes. So they have to take time off between games or they take time off during games or they, you know, they play different shifts. And um, I want employees to be the same way. And then I noticed myself with almost diminishing returns as well, that if I don't take breaks where I can literally shut down for a week or for two weeks, and I mean shutting down by no business periodicals, no business books, you know, no business podcasts, no, 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 no laptops, terrible. no emails. And I, trust me, I love business. I'm a junkie. But what's wrong with actually reading a book for fun? And, and what's wrong with just hanging out with friends? What's wrong with going away for a week with, with nothing other than whoever you're with? Um, no, I, I did it. I did this 20 years ago. I was running a big chain of collision repair shops in the U.S. It's now known as Gerber Auto Collision. And um, I left and went to India for four weeks. And now this was in 1997. So there was no internet and there were no cell phones. Well, there were cell phones, but you, didn't, you weren't running them out of India. So I just left and my two business partners held up the fort. And I came back a month later and I looked at, I, I don't know, there was about 14 projects that I had that I was working on at the time. And I remember coming back and looking at them and thinking there were probably eight that I could literally just delete, like completely stop, never pick up again, because I had time to actually think about the important and the highly impactful things and all the busy stuff just kind of fell away. So, so what do I do? We, um, we give all of our employees at all my companies that I coach, we give them five weeks vacation that's paid, um, but it's use it or lose it. So they have to take all five weeks and it's mandatory that all employees take five weeks vacation. So in September, when they finish their first eight months of the year, nine months of the year, we sit down and we book out the rest of their days of vacation in their calendar for them. We try to get everybody to take one week during Christmas and New Year's, one week um, during the spring break period, two weeks during summer, and then one more week, we take kind of the five days and spread them over three-day weekends to make them four-day weekends. But we force people. So we... We literally make them put them in their calendar. And what happens from that is employees kind of look at the leadership team and go, wow, you actually really give a shit about us. And it's yeah. like, yeah, I want you to de-stress. I want you to slow down. Yeah, our culture is, is very not about forcing anybody to do anything. We, you know, we were very I know. But it's like, yeah, I, know, I, I agree with you. Ugh. Yeah, but so they, imagine if you just force them just to take vacation, they'd be like, well, that's so bizarre. You're not forcing me to work. You're actually forcing me not to work. It, it throws productivity into high gear. No, I know. And as you know, I, I have to accept that as the leader of the organization, I set an example, whether I like it or not. We just, we, we had just onboarded a new employee and had that exact conversation. It was like, everybody don't email her after five and yeah. don't, don't bother her on the weekends because we, we really are setting this example. So this, this may be the coachable moment for you as, as, and maybe I'll work with you on some accountability on it, but um, I had a, a retreat with my leadership team 15 years ago when I was the COO for 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And I remember one of the guys on my team, when I, we did a verbal 360 feedback. So we did it out loud of each person, uh, 20 minutes per person. I've just kind of systemized it on my blog, but and I'll link it in the notes. Um, 
but one of the comments that I got from, from Tyler and then heard it from two other people later that night was I can't be a good role model as COO if I'm not taking vacations and I'm stressed out and I'm working 24 hours a day because it makes them feel like the only way they'll be successful in my eyes is to do the same. And it crushed me because I was like, God, I'm working so much and none of us are getting out of this alive. <laughs> like, like, you know, like we're, we're just kind of walking each other home. Right. And, and we may as well have fun along the way. And, and I think what happened when we started to push for that, cause that was the start of the five weeks vacation and the start of the true work-life balance was employees started to really go through brick walls to build the company because they knew that we really cared about them as people. Um, so even now, like my assistant now books two Fridays a month clear in my calendar Tomorrow's one of them. Tomorrow's one of my pure days where I have no business calls, no emails, nothing. And I'm just taking the day off. So yeah, coach me, please. Anytime awesome. you want to coach me, Cameron, go ahead. I, I always <laughs> love our conversations. Every time, you know, we meet up at Genius Network or wherever it is, um, I always learn something from you. So All right. I don't know how you're going to do this. Like if you're just going to, you know, fly down and throw away my phone, I'm not really sure how you're going to. I'm telling you, I don't think this is going to go well for you, but I'm inviting you to coach me to take some time. I, I'm up for the challenge. I'll make it happen. So we'll, I'll work with you offline on it. But one thing I'd like you to do right now is for the next quarter. So let's just look at, um, you know, the next three months, I want you to block off at least one Friday per month that you're not doing anything. And, and, but I want, I want 24 hours of no cell phone. Are you crazy? No, no, no. And I mean, I mean it like no complete digital. I just want digital complete nothingness for, for that whole period. Now you can buy a second cell phone. You can afford it that you can have your Instagram <laughs> on and your, you know, Facebook on, but I want like no business, nothing for full 24 hour periods. But then how do you listen to podcasts? Well, you, but you can't listen to any business podcasts. You can listen to, you can listen to podcasts about nutrition or fun or, but you, you need to, so I had a, I had a CEO years ago, we were at a, at a conference, a big uh, entrepreneurs organization conference in Vegas. And he was hounding me. He's like, come on, give me more business books. Give me more business books. Tell me what else to read. And I'm like, okay, stop. Like, I want you to, I want you to read three books for fun. And then I'll give you more business books. So I gave him three, three books literally off the top of my head that had nothing to do with business. And I said, when you finish those three, then I'll give you more business books. And he goes, but what's the point? I said, the point is you need to relax. Like, yeah. Like, right. Even yeah. to have conversations with friends, like you're so smart, even to have conversations with friends, they don't want to hear about our work. They don't want to hear about a business podcast. They want to hear about, something fun that happened or some TV show we saw or some hike that we just did or some, you know, great adventure we just had or some bucket list item we crossed off our list. Like no one really gives a shit about what we do for work. Okay. You just landed on something. So hiking, that's going to be how I achieve this on a I'm sitting here trying to grapple with how do I achieve this unachievable goal? Hiking. There you go. Hiking. Yeah. So do you know, do you know Lululemon? Of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, the brand Lululemon, right? Of course, yeah. Okay. So the, the founder of Lululemon, his name is Chip Wilson, is from here in Vancouver. And I bumped into him last week at the TED conference. And Chip is really well known for hiking a, a local hike called the Grouse Grind. And regardless of who you are, if you want to spend time with Chip Wilson, most people will be like, hey, do you want to go for breakfast? Do you want to grab a coffee? And, and CEOs are like, no, I'm really fucking busy. 
if you want to meet with Chip, all you do is send him a note, no matter who you are, and say, I want to go hiking. Can you tell me a day you're hiking the grouse grind? He does it five days a week. And can I join you? He will always say yes. And if you're prepared to get your ass out and go hike up this insane hike, you've got time with him. Well, like that's, that's easy to put into our schedule. And so that's something I'm starting to do more of now as well is if people want time with me, yeah, we can, I'll spend time with you, but we're golfing or we're hiking or we're going to go for a run or we're going to go play tennis or we're going to go for a bike ride, but we're going to go do something that it does not involve sitting in a boardroom or me just having another meal. Like I want to go be active. And I think that's where culture comes from, right? Is that, that true connection with people. Absolutely. Yeah. We love our walking meetings. Like if we have to um, meet in person, it's, you know, we'll tend, I mean, we live in Miami beach, so we're super fortunate and we, you know, right. we, we do that on purpose, right? Cause if you're going to be um, giving, you know, portraying culture and giving culture to others, you have to yourself have a great culture first. Right. So our culture is in this beautiful city where we can relax and be creative. And, and we go on these walks um, over the pier um, it's beautiful. So if you ever want to come, yeah, come walk with us. Do I, I, I'll come walk with you, but here's what I want you to, what we're going to promise is we're both going to leave our cell phones on your desk Yeah. and we're going to take our socks and shoes off and we're going to go walk barefoot and then I'll go for a walk. I'm way more into walking with you than I am the, uh, the Lululemon guy. What is that group? <laughs> I think his like cultish group is very creepy and I, I very much don't. Oh, like- Landmark. Yeah, yeah, I don't hear about Landmark. So I know, yeah, he's he's a little bit, well, he's a lot of bit into Landmark. He really pushed that. But again, he had a really interesting philosophy around Landmark, and I've never done it. I have a lot of my close friends who are CEOs here in Vancouver that have done it. Um, but his whole philosophy was that if you can't go introspective and work on yourself, you're going to be coming into the company blaming things. So he really wanted people who were going to at least be introspective and look at their own contribution to problems. And he thought Landmark could help them solve that. And I yeah. was like, yeah, I, I kind of see that. Right. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely cultish. Yeah. So, Go ahead. <laughs> so talk to me about your leadership development where, you know, you, you kind of came out of the classic education, like, by the way, like huge kudos to do a, your, your law degree and an MBA. That's unbelievable. I did my undergrad in law. Um, so what are you working on now for your skill development? How do you stay, you know, current and relative as a COO? I have a huge growth mindset. So I'm constantly pulling and learning and understanding better ways of, um, and, and being introspective, like you discussed, it's, it's like, you have to, I think you have to honestly assess yourself on a, you know, on a daily basis and just ask yourself what you could do better. And so I do that um, after every day. I just say, okay, what, you know, what could I have changed? What could I have done better? And um, this past quarter has really been about uh, communication for me. It's like, how do I communicate in a way that has been, um, that, that can be better, that can be more connecting with people and that can connect with, you know, the, with motivating them deeply inside. And it's funny because I spent all of this time researching this and then I was approached to write a book about communications and I said, okay, fine, I'll write a book. So my book is actually, I have uh, my 12 favorite um, communication skills huh. are published in September of this year. I'd love to send you a copy if you want. I would to love, yeah, I'd love to read it. So I'm, and I'm huge in this. So, so give us a couple of what your communication, I guess, tips or your top three might be. And then I'll, I'll tell you what one of mine is recently after you tell me yours. So I, I like to use this term reverse engineering your brain, which is essentially how I walk people through 
Um, empathy, how to be an empathetic person if you're not, because I do believe that empathy is a skill. Yeah. So for me, you know, really breaking down how you can reverse engineer your brain and step into the other person's shoes, understand them, which requires, you know, simple micro behaviors like open listening and, um, you know, really not planning your next sentence while that person is talking and the things that people do, you know, so many things that we do now are very closed. And so, you know, how do you become an open listener and open, more open and understanding others? And then how do you communicate with them in their language? So if, you know, you hear certain things, it gives you cues and I walk through what those cues are and then, you know, how you can communicate with these people and connect with them that allows them to, um, you know, to, to want to, you know, be led and you can lead them in different directions. So, um, so I would say empathy, assertiveness, uh, you know, because a lot of people come to me as a female executive and say, how did you do this? And, and I published like the 20, the, when, I, when I turned 30 years old, I published this thing and it was like the 20 things you need to know how to become a, a female executive. And I, become a, I became a female executive at the age of 26. So um, this, this 20 things, I just published it on Facebook and people started publishing it. It's published in a couple places. And actually one of my law professors said, um, can I, can I hand this to everybody in my class? And I was like, yeah, sure, do whatever you want with it. So now at the end of uh, law school, she teaches bar classes for, you know, people who are becoming lawyers. And she gives them this list of these, these things. Because um, I, I think, you know, really practicing assertiveness could, is transformational for anybody, but especially for women who want to be in leadership roles. Um, so there are my two. I want to hear yours. Uh, so, tell, so give me, sorry, yeah, you will. Give me more on open listening. What exactly does that mean? So open listening is really just asking questions that dive deeper into the topic whenever it's your turn to speak and staying mm. on topic. Um, and Instead then, of just saying what's next on your mind. Exactly, exactly. So diving, diving in with people and the more you can ask questions directly related to what they're talking about, the more they feel heard and the more you have to listen, right? So that's a really great little hack. Yeah, I've started taking notes when I'm talking to people instead of me wanting to just jump out with my question. I write my question down so that I can try to stay on the train of thought. And I'm, I'm a very, um, I think I'm on the spectrum. I, I'm, I am on the spectrum for Tourette's, which is thinking out loud is, is on the spectrum. And so I'm not, I don't have a lot of thoughts in my head. They kind of come out of my mouth and then my, my ears hear them. Um, so it's hard. So I, I've also learned to sit on my hands, which is really bizarre. Um, but when, when I sit on my hands, because I'm an expressive talker, I, I use my hands when I'm talking, even when I'm talking to you now. So I find when I sit on my hands, it prevents me from talking quickly. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm really weird or if I've just, but anybody who's an expressive out there, um, try it. It's really weird. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm a big so, fan of neurodiversity. I think we're all neurodiverse. You okay. Know? So here's, here's one of mine and you'll see me do it right now. So what have I just done right now? Oh yeah, I, put, I see you on, on camera here. Hello. Right. Now, when we go on camera all of a sudden, because we've been off camera, now look what happens. The energy just shifts, right? Anyone who's listening can't see it, but there's an energy shift. There's all of a sudden a human connection. You've got a smile. There's somebody who's interested. We know you're not just sitting you know, with your feet up staring at the ceiling. There's, so I use video all the time with my clients now. Every coaching client that I work with, um, when I start a podcast interview, when I'm chatting with friends, like it's always over video and I've got that human connection. And then when we go off video, all of a sudden something changes. And then there's this disconnect that just happens where it's like, 
oh shit, like we don't have that human thing happening again. So by the way, go off video again, just so we have the strong bandwidth for this. But so that's what I've been trying to get my, all my clients to do um, with, with their employees, with potential employees, doing job interviews over video if you can't have them in person, and then also with your customers and suppliers. And what I've noticed is that when you have a video call with your customers and suppliers, you'll never lose those customers and suppliers because you build the relationship and it's a free tool versus like just say, hey, do you want to hop on Zoom? Or if you don't use Zoom, can we do FaceTime? You've pretty much covered 80% of the population. And the old argument of, well, you know, baby boomers or seniors don't use it. They're all using it now. You know, the highest growth demographic in using video right now is seniors because they want to talk to their grandchildren on video. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I think oh, it's so funny that you say that because I think the more human and the more human you can make an interaction, the the better. Absolutely. And you know, there there's an entire chapter on um, how much communication gets actually lost that you don't even realize because only twenty percent of our communication is the words, and the other eighty percent is body language. It's the tone of voice. It's all oh. these human things. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you don't, you don't see that over the phone. Like, so even again, for anyone who's listening, you won't, you didn't see this, but before we started the podcast, Jessica and I both kind of laughed and smiled and kind of read each other's, you know, I'm wearing a sweatshirt and she's wearing a t-shirt and we both read what was on each other's shirts. And it was just part of an, an interaction that was very normal over video that doesn't happen over the phone or over email or over Slack. And I think we're really missing we're missing that. And, and I'm a big fan of mobile and a big fan of distributed workforces and freelancers. And, um, but I'm also a huge fan of the human connection. And I think that's where a lot of the communication breakdown happens is we don't take the time to connect. Absolutely. Totally so, go ahead. Oh no, there's this, um, I can't remember the CEO of a company decided for an entire week that he was going to respond to every email by saying, pick up the phone and call me. And he said that he learned more in that entire week about his employees than he had, than you know he had ever known. Because when you have somebody pick up the phone and call you, there's just such a deeper um, connection that's made, and you understand things very differently. And so I can't say that it's a productivity you know hack to pick up the phone because it does take more time, but the quality of communication greatly increases. And and you know that's I think what happens when we send text messages or emails at times is things can escalate or get misread. And oh, at that point, like, stop and pick up the phone because you can start a war with a text or an email if you go well, back. I've pissed off people saying the words happy birthday in an email. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, happy birthday. That's it? Yeah, I just did happy birthday. I know, that's it. I'm like, dude, what the hell? Like, I, I'm busy. Yeah, well, you didn't have enough time to say happy birthday and how things going? I'm like, holy shit. Like, I gave <laughs> you a two-word email and I'm getting trouble for it. Try, try this for a second. Here's a communication one that I've always loved. Write down this six-word sentence. Okay. The sentence is, I didn't say you were beautiful. Okay, what is the point of this? Okay, now read it out loud and put the emphasis on the first word. I don't want to read this to you and call you beautiful. This, I don't, I don't, I'm not read, playing. Read it, read it out. Read it out. Cameron Harold, there is going to be a, a recording of this podcast that I don't want to live forever. Okay, hang on. Change the word beautiful. Change the word beautiful to smart. I didn't say you were smart. Okay, okay read, it, read it. Record either. Mr. Read it again. Put the emphasis on the second word. <laughs> this is so silly. I know what you're trying to do here, but I don't like playing these games. Read it again. How coachable I am, Cameron. I'm telling you, this is going to be tough for you. 
I didn't say you were smart. Okay, read it again. Put the emphasis on the third word. I didn't say you were smart. Read it again. Put the emphasis on the fourth word. I didn't say you were smart. Read it again. Do the fifth word. I didn't say you were smart. Read it again. Say the sixth word. I didn't say you were smart. I don't know how to do that. Did I do Bingo. Okay? So see okay. what, what, that's why written communication is so hard is because a six word sentence can mean six completely different things depending on which word you put the intonation on. You take that into a business environment where we're all scanning emails and reading quickly and moving fast and dealing with Slack and 120 emails a day. It's no wonder people are pissed off is because we're rushing through life and we don't have time to have that human connection. Totally agree with you. And so you haven't given, wait, you, I guess you have, you have given your tips, your communication tips. I didn't say you were beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) My, so my communication tip is, is to, because of this written communication is to get on video. I love it. More than anything else. The second one is to listen twice as often as we speak. And that, you know, it's that whole phrase that God gave us two ears and one mouth and we should use them in that ratio. I think leaders need to speak last. The, the most senior person in the table or in a meeting should speak last. They should get the most junior and new people to speak first. Often the ideas are going to get heard, but when the leader's always speaking first, you, you're never really growing people. You're never truly listening to them. Um, so those would probably be the big two. Totally agree with those. So one of the roles of the COO, we started a, a group called the COO Alliance to as a, kind of the only network in the world for the second in command. You know, you've got all these groups for entrepreneurs with YPO and EO and Vistage and Genius Network and amazing places for the CEO to go grow, but there was never a group for the second in command. And one of the things that we worked on at our last event was the relationship between the CEO and the COO. And, and, I've always said that the role of the COO is to make the CEO iconic. Um, But how do you work with Jason as CEO? How do you guys work to stay on the same page, to keep a strong relationship with each other? Um, You know, what, what, what systems do you use or, you know, just walk me through that. Yeah, sure. So um, I always say I'm an execution person who's never had a brilliant idea. Jason, you, you know, you know him well, he's full of brilliant ideas. So it's as simple as, he gives me a brilliant idea. I, I say yay or nay, and then I run with it, you know, and make it happen. Um, right. And that's worked, that's worked really well, except that this time, around this time last year, I said no to a really brilliant idea. And he went around my back and made it happen anyway. And it was amazing. And now I'm like, oh, no. So <laughs> I, I realized I've got to, you know, at least try to say yes more than I say no, but um, we tend to be on the same page, I would say. We don't, um, if we have a, like, a miscommunication or something, I, I'm a big fan of just like just quashing it immediately, as soon as humanly possible, you know, because it's, life is short and I don't like, I don't like drama. So, well, good. And good <laughs> Sorry, say that again? Oh, I said that's my, I mean, that's my personal move with everybody, so. Yeah, and good for you, though, to be able to say no, because I think that's one of the things that the CEO really wants in a second-in-command is someone who will say no when everybody else is kind of being their yes-men and being political. Um, How do you say no, though, to the CEO when they're really passionate about an idea? Because that's, you know, a lot of these entrepreneurs are are really the squirrel, right? The big, shiny object. And they, in the absence of a way to put their idea somewhere, they just want it started. So how do you say no or what do you do? 
I mean, I just say no. It's funny. I, I had one of my, somebody was interviewing for me and they said I was the weirdest COO they'd ever met because I said no four times. And then I said yes on the fifth time. So wow. my, my response tends to be, you know, I'm a very open person. I don't, I don't like to pick sides. I like to stay in the center in an open space and allow people to come to me with ideas. And if the answer is no the first time, that doesn't mean it will be no the third time, right? So I think everybody knows that, you know, who I work with and they, they trust that, you know, if their answer, if their, if their idea is good enough, they'll get to a yes with me. That's interesting. One of my, one of my old mentors who is the founder of a group called College Pro Painters said that true leadership is saying no much more often than we say yes. And I never really understood that. And it wasn't that he was this autocratic dictatorial leader, far from it, but his, he was trying to be the filter for ideas. And so what I've tried to do is take a, an approach that I'll often say no, but I'll more often say not, not yet. And I'll take the idea and try to run it through a decision filter where I look at, you know, the impact on the business and why we could be doing it and what it would look like if we did it. And then I'll look at a quick ROI. So I have a one pager that we um, can kind of link in the show notes as well called the decision filter. But the idea is that I just want to look at it and say, you know, green light, yellow light, red light, green meaning yes, let's do it now. Yellow mean, yeah, we may do it, but not right away. We'll put it on our list and every quarter we'll, we'll look at which projects to start. And red meaning, no, we're just kind of deleting it. And that seems to have worked well with CEOs because they just want their idea first considered and second, if we're not going to do it, they need to know it's being taken care of and, and kept somewhere. They just don't want to lose track of it. And, and it's kind of like their hard drive's already full, right? We can't just, we, we can't let them sit with their own ideas. Yeah, I love that because, you know, there, there is caution. It's funny, you know, I say it's a very simplified just, you know, discussion that I just had with you, but there is that caution with saying, shutting down people's brilliant ideas, right? That's the last thing that we want to do is shut down somebody's brilliant idea. We want to have people feel empowered, you mm -hmm. know, that they are heard um, in the company. And so, yeah, like uh, the example that I gave you where I said no and he went around, you know, he went around me. We, if your idea is good enough, I think you have to have that empowerment to go around people and just make it happen, right? Right, totally. Yeah, if, it's, if it lives within your core values and it's in your, you know, within your competency and it's good for the customer and it drives either revenue, profit, customer, employee engagement, then fuck, go for it. Um, yeah. But, it, and yeah, so, so I agree. Now, how do you, how do you guys decide what projects to green light? Um, yeah. How do you say, and then I've got one other question before we have to wrap up. How do we decide what projects to green light? Um, you know, we, it's tough. We, we believe in a place where uh, candor is safe. So that's one of our core values that we live as a company is like candor is completely safe here. So we'll get in a room and hash it out and the best idea will win. And we all kind of have that agreement with each other. And we have a very transparent conversation and, and things can get messy and emotional, but isn't that part of the fun at the end of the day? And, you know? But what, what makes the idea better? Are you, is it based on an ROI? Is it based on making some bigger goal or part of your vivid, vivid vision come true? Yeah. So we're always aiming toward our mission of helping, you know, transform our customers and, and providing them with influence and giving them um, better ways of doing business. So you know, with, if that is first in mind, which it has to be for all of us, then um, where we land with that will be somewhere great. And we just kind of trust that process. Okay. The last question I've got, how do you guys measure internally? How do you measure either internally or at your customers? How do you measure your employee satisfaction? Mm, so 
I think there are, again, you go down to all these productivity tools. I think really passionate people will tell you, right? Like you don't, we don't need a tool. We don't need to run an engagement, you know, where I say on a scale of one to five, I think those things generally are, are very silly. Yeah. Um, so we have a really open policy of like, let's just talk to each other. And we, you know, we do, we just talk it's- to each other. If somebody's unhappy or if they need something then you know they know that i'm always available and um like text me you know <laughs> well it's it's kind of i was talking to a ceo the other day and he was saying he was just getting ready to start his annual review process and i said don't like just don't do an annual review or a quarterly review of employees he goes well why not and i said well look you've got kids right and he's got a 10 year old and an eight year old and he said yeah I said, do you do an annual review with your children? He goes, no. I said, oh, so you must do a quarterly review with your kids, right? He goes, well, no. I said, well, what do you do with your kids? He goes, well, if they do something wrong, I tell them right away. And I said, yeah. And if they do something right, he goes, oh, I praise them right away. I said, do the same with your employees. Like, just, just talk to your kids and talk to your employees and make sure they can talk to you. And if you're doing something wrong, make sure that they can say, you know, dad, you're being an asshole. Like one of my kids the other day was like, my kid literally is 15. He goes, dude, you're being really intense. And I was like, I started laughing. I'm like, fuck, you're so right. Like, what am I getting so wrapped up about something so stupid? Um, And I think that you're right. I think we don't really need the tools. We just need to kind of use our gut and and be connected, right? Right. I mean, no different than I check in, you know, with myself. A great manager checks in, right? Like, you have to check in on people and and really have a conversation. Because I think there's this work-life falsity as if we're not human at work. And of course we are, you know? So if we do the most human thing and do the right thing, then that we know how happy we are and engaged we are in our work with each other. And if we're accountable to each other, then we're accountable to all sides, right? The human side and the business side. All right, Jessica Higgins, I want to do something that is very human and very accountable. I am going to take my socks and shoes off. I'm going for a walk outside for about five minutes barefoot. Are you going to do the same? I'm going to have a call with my team. I have a call scheduled in five minutes. So, um, yes. Can I, can, I ha- can I take my call while I'm doing this or does it have to be after? No, you have to do it without your cell phone. Oh, after. Isn't it? it doesn't have to be a long walk. I'm only going five minutes, but I'm going to walk on the grass in my bare feet so I can feel the energy of the earth and I'm just going to disconnect for five minutes, no phone. Can you do the same at some point in the next three hours? Let's do it. All right, we're on. <laughs> Jessica Higgins, the COO of Gaping Void, is going to send me a text message in the next three hours to let me know she's gone to walk barefoot in Miami. I'm doing the same in Vancouver. Everybody's listening. Have an awesome, awesome day. Thanks, Jessica. Thanks, Cameron. You've been listening to Second in Command with Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. To learn more best practices from industry-leading COOs, please visit COOalliance.com.